time again when it's the Hidden Yardage Podcast on the Blog and the Boys Podcast Network. I'm Mark Lane. Follow me on Twitter at the Real Mark Lane. Sean Martin joins me as always. You can find him on Twitter at Sean Martin. Sean, how are you doing? Hey, good to be back, Mark. A uh, tip of the cowboy hat to start the show goes out to the original Pokemon series. I know many Cowboys fans can relate to, and many people, you know, regardless of who they root for in the NFL world, can relate to coming together to watch the Pokemon cartoon. Well, debuted in 1997. I think you all know where this is going. And coming off the air here in 2023, the uh, clip of how it ended in Japan, which is yet to air on TV in the U.S., but the clip from Japan has made it on the social media, so many have seen that already. And, uh, yeah, no matter you know how long ago you watched Pokemon or anything like that, Bit sad seeing uh, Ass Catcher and Pikachu right off into the sunset, like we hope the Cowboys will be doing sometime soon. Yeah, well, maybe he shouldn't have gone on that journey anyway. He messed up the juju, and that's why the Cowboys haven't gone to a Super Bowl. Way to go, Ash! And what, what's Dr. Pokey Oaks or whatever doing anyway? He should have sent the kid home, not on some thousands of miles journey to collect these animals. So, yeah, I blame Pokemon. And that's what I say to anybody that brings up these arguments, oh, well, this thing happened while the Cowboys have not been to the Super Bowl since. Well, maybe they should have not done the things. You know, I actually used to date a woman, and I discovered that she had moved from your part of the country to, well, actually where you're living now, incidentally. And (laughs) you know when it happened? You know when they all packed up and left? 1996. And that's what I'm saying. Anybody that did anything between 96 and 97 needs to stop what they're doing and restart and replay the last quarter century because you messed it up. So, yeah, Pokemon, the good, it should end. Now Dallas maybe can win a Super Bowl again. Here's the thing everybody's saying, you know, Ask Catch never got to see the Cowboys playing an NFC championship game. Well, maybe he was too busy to watch any football in the first place. I mean, that probably never crossed his mind. I mean, he was out there, like you said, basically just gets his level one Pikachu thrown at him and then has to go, you know, save the world type of deal. So he didn't have time to be watching football anyway. So it doesn't matter who was playing in the games, not on his mind or anybody in the Pokemon universe's mind. You know, it would be the greatest thing in the world. And it would really take like all of my favors and everything to even make this happen and I might have to go off into the sunset like Ash as well. But if we could get Jerry Jones to have Ash Ketchum in his suite for a Cowboys game (laughs) at AT AT&T Stadium, you know, I think that would be really wild. Do you remember the craze when everybody was playing Pokemon Go? I'm trying to imagine what it was like, you know, around the stadium and things like that. I'm sure... That was always the conversation that the marketer that Jerry is that had a, have always been a conversation like, oh, how do we make the stadium a you know place where you can catch Pokemon and people are I'm sure trying anyway and you know that was a crazy time but to see I was in college at the time and everybody walking around campus so like people already you know walking around with their phones and listening to music not too out of the ordinary to see that but just hoods of people like all playing the same game on their phone throwing pokeballs virtually to uh, to catch things i think we all remember the pokemon go phase but just trying to imagine what it was like around at&t stadium or the star or any of those things just as when you were in college 
uh, everybody was on their phones. Historically, middle-aged dads never turn off the phone notifications on their phones, so you'll always be at a public event and hear the sports center, do-do-do, do-do-do, or uh, they get a text and that <laughs> whistling noise or whatever. And that's really what it's like, Sean, when the media, uh, I don't care who you follow, says, bah, bah, franchise tag, the Cowboys are going to use a franchise tag. It's like, how do you, what are you doing? You want a heater today. We know from, I would say, even in the Blog and the Boys era, which I would say began maybe in 2005, let's call it. Um, even in the Blog and the Boys era, you should know by now that the franchise tag is a negotiating tool. It's like the air, I'll set it up from, um, you can argue whether this comes from personal experience or not, Sean. But this is basically how the franchise tag works for the Cowboys. Think of a mortgage payment. Now, it may say on the document, oh, this is due at the first. But you actually have a 14-day grace period. So it's really actually due on the 15th. Then the money's not debited out of your account until about the 18th. So really, you've got to come up with a mortgage payment by the 18th. I think that's how the Cowboys use the franchise tag is it's their deadline is not whatever the media says. McGaw, McGaw, the franchise tag, McGaw. It's July 15th at 3 p.m. Central Time every year. And that gets lost every year. Well, if you want to make the case that this year, maybe they bucked the trend just a little bit in terms of, I wouldn't say not using the tag on a player that's not clear that they don't want to keep. You know, obviously the commitment to Tony Pollard was even more so heightened when you know, you moved on from Ezekiel Elliott, so we know that. But if you go back to 2015, I mean, the list of players that they've tagged since then, it's just so clear and evident and jumps off the page that these are players they didn't plan on letting get away. And it's just exactly like you said, it's that negotiating tool to make sure they can do that, but still have the time to negotiate and all the while have them on the roster still. So, you know, 2015, it was Des Bryant, 2018 and 19, Demarcus Lawrence, 2020 and 21, probably the best example of this. It was Dak Prescott, of course. No intention of letting him get anywhere. Last year, Dalton Schultz, prove it kind of deal. And probably surprising that he got away just because of the money he got from the Texans, you know, one year, nine million. Would you like to have him back for that? I think I probably would, but Cowboys believe what they have in their younger tight ends, mainly Jake Ferguson. And then this year, Tony Pollard, you know, still fits in line with the trend of you don't want to let him get away. He's important, but it's still a little bit more that, you know, in the Dalton Soltz model of he, he still has a little bit to prove. He's not as proven as Prescott was when he got the tag or Demarcus Lawrence, Des Bryant. You know, we don't truly know how Tony Pollard is going to handle coming off the significant injury too being a lead feature back. So you know, we all have high hopes for it. We think it's going to be great. We think it's going to make them more dynamic than when he was splitting carries with Elliott. But truly, we don't know these things. And so that's why, you know, it kind of changes the perspective on how they're using the tag in these last couple of years. But for a win-now type of team, 
They're finally making moves that associate them with win now. They need Tony Pollard to be great. That's the expectation. They can't let him get anywhere. And that's exactly what putting the tag on him did. You know, Joey Ola did in the way you explained there. With Tony Pollard, you just always had the feeling that he was going to remain a cowboy. Um, And it was kind of surprising that they did use the tag, even as a negotiating tactic, because the sense was he was going to come back between the two of Elliott and Pollard, which is why it was surprising when there was talk of, well, we're going to try to keep both. Oh, okay. Um, because <laughs> Pollard has a little more tread on the tire, even though he will be coming back from rehab. But here's why I think Pollard stayed with Dallas is because Michael Gallup, that was one of his reasons why he stayed with Dallas, didn't really want to go anywhere else, is because he wanted to, all the doctors who performed the surgery and everything were here in Dallas, and he didn't want to have a rehab begin in another NFL city, because that's difficult when you have medical procedure here and a rehab there. If you can have the continuity of procedure and rehab under the same organization, you know, it's just better long-term. So I think Pollard saw that as well, and that was a motivating factor to get something done with Dallas. And this isn't a knock on, like, how the Cowboys plan on using him because, like I said, you know, most people are excited about his role being much bigger and me being one of them. But also for Pollard, you know, you have to consider how many other teams were going to really make him the lead-back type of player that the Cowboys are prepared to do with him, you know? There's a role for Pollard in really every modern offense right now, and the Cowboys are you know trying to take a step towards that with Mike McCarthy calling the plays and getting more dynamic at running back. Those are all good signs. But almost anywhere else, Pollard would probably have a back similar to his skill set, you know, to split carries with, as opposed to when Pollard is coming off the field. Why Elliott was here, it was for you know the bona fide reason of oh we need a different type of look. You know, just a short yardage, and we're going between the tackles here. And Pollard doesn't get enough credit for how well. He can handle those types of runs too, but at least it was a true, you know, thunder and lightning type of approach in the backfield to take him off the field to do something different. Whereas almost anywhere else, it would just be Pollard and somebody similar to his skill set. And he's if he's coming off the field, it's more like oh, the coaches just don't trust him to take this volume of snaps, or you know, we trust this other guy more. So it would be harder to justify, you know, his role there compared to him pretty much being the guy right now for the Cowboys. You know, Malik Davis can show some flashes. It's nice to have Rico Dowdle back. Ronald Jones is a nice veteran signing. The draft is one thing. Go on and on about the resources they've put in at the running back position, you know, ever since Jason Garrett's time. It's always been a position that they put so much emphasis on. But right now, far and away, the best thing you have going at that position, even off the injury, is Pollard. And I don't know how many other teams that would be the case on the depth chart right now. Yeah, and really, uh, it's the draft that I think is going to solve some of these issues. And by the way, uh, some of the, um, I don't know, they're not exactly splashes. They're kind of like, uh, well, okay, they're a splash, but like when the 18 month old uh, with the floaties is in the pool, splashing their hands around. Um, it's kind of like that in terms of what the Cowboys have done to address running back and free agency. And when you bring in a Ronald Jones, I think this is more so that you can have the depth to get through 
your offseason program. I think they're going to address running back within the first uh, first four rounds. They're going to address running back, and they're going to bolster it. But Ronald Jones provides you just with some veteran competition, something to look at, and I'd be surprised if he remained on the roster when they go to Oxnard. Does that make sense? It does. You know, I think uh, I have an article coming from bloggingtheboys.com about kind of some reading the tea leaves of what Ezekiel Elliott's potential interested teams tell us about, you know, how the Cowboys are also trying to view their backfield more in line with, you know, the rest of the league as opposed to kind of their archaic thinking that they stuck with all the way up until last year of, uh, you know, Elliott needs to be the feature guy, but then by the end of the year, it was Pollard anyway, and now they've made that full commitment to Pollard. But, you know, if a guy like Ronald Jones, you've seen other veterans, you know, get similar deals, so it lines up well as far as the Cowboys didn't overpay by any means to get him in here. But, you know, certainly what the Cowboys will miss is the pass protection from Elliott, and we talk about that a lot, and you've pointed out very well that, you know, maybe we bring, we only bring that up so much because we don't know how well other backs pass protect, and so we just hear about that with Elliott, and he's our guy, so that's why we talked about it. But I think that does matter to Dak Prescott. You know, I think a lot of what Elliott brought to this team mattered to Dak Prescott. He was, of course, vocal about, you know, the friendship on and off the field that they had. But you could tell pretty early on Sundays when you turn on a Cowboys game how Prescott feels about the protection in front of him. You know, it gets ugly quick when there's any uncertainty up front on that offensive line. But for a while, Elliott could help mask that, stepping into blitzing linebackers or having Prescott at this point where he needs him to go. You know, Elliott was a huge part of that. And so I think the solution that, you know, can keep Prescott happy there is, oh, you have Pollard. He might not be able to block this guy coming down on you. But if he's coming down on you, that means Pollard's open. You can just flip him the ball and we're going to make more big plays that way. I think that is the solution. And that's going to make this offense a whole lot better. But Ronald Jones can also pass protect. So that's where I think, you know, you, you have to support your franchise quarterback in every way possible. And this is a move that might might do that in a way where you can point to Ronald Jones and say, you know, if we do need a passing down, keep it back in the backfield to protect, that can be Ronald Jones. But every snap you're putting Ronald Jones on the field, again, it's one less check down option, one less area to throw the ball to Prescott where you can actually get a big play out of. So that's why I think, you know, the idea is that Pollard is really going to be the answer to a lot of those, all of those problems that you have now without Elliott, but you still want to have every base covered going into the offseason program. And that's exactly what, having a veteran now in the fold like Ronald Jones gives him. Yeah, and I may have been a little too Jim Cramer with my prediction that he won't be on the roster by <laughs> training camp. But the po- So I'll amend that if I am allowed to say this. I don't think he makes the 53-man roster in any significant – maybe, you know, they stash on the practice squad in the season. Type you want to get him for some preseason games. Yeah, so. yeah, but that's what he is is he's – kind of like uh, he's somebody that fills the roster, allows Pollard to recover, and is competition if the rookie can beat Malik Davis. You know what I mean? And that's what I think Ronald Jones represents. So that's why I made that bold claim. I get it. You know, you like I said, you look at Elliott's market for – potential foresetting and how the Cowboys are looking at it. And, you know, we don't know if these teams are going to manifest anything. There was some smoke and then it kind of dissipated as far as if it was just a whistle list of teams that we 
watched to be interested in him. Moved in. Now, was that like a smoke bomb on the 4th of July, or was it more like one of those things you light up that whizzes around? Yeah, a that's a season bit? one uh, throwback reference. Season one, hidden yard is throwback reference. All right. Um, I think it's, it was more like the little sparkler things because I remember playing with those. Um, one of my friend, hometown friends back home. He lived on like a cul-de-sac dead end type thing. And so we were just running up and down the street one time with those, like knowing that we weren't going to like run into anybody or anything. And so that was fun. But um, where was I? Uh, Eagles, Jets, and Bengals were the reported teams on Elliott. And, you know, there's certainly some contenders in there. But you look at the Eagles. Do they have a role for like a short yardage type physical pass protecting back? What they do, and they even valued it enough to re-sign Boston Scott after Miles Sanders got away. So, you know, Boston Scott might take them out of the Elliott running, which is certainly a, you know, fall from grace for Elliott to be compared to a guy like Boston Scott. But I do think that's what we're seeing as far as the league, how they kind of view him. So that's Philadelphia situation. Cincinnati has been trying to, you know, find ways to keep Joe Burrow upright since he came in the league basically and haven't done a terrific job of that at all times. So, could, could they use a physical back like Elliott to just balance the offense more and help in pass protection for Burrow, certainly? And then the Jets, you know, a bit of a murky situation there, but they're just trying to stockpile talent so that they're attractive to Aaron Rodgers in a trade. And, you know, whether or not Elliott has something left in the tank, we'll see what Rodgers thinks about that if that all comes together. But if it's not Rodgers in New York, it's either going to be Zach Wilson or another young quarterback or a veteran. And any of those options, you know, you need a stable run game to give yourself any chance to evaluate evaluate what you're getting at the quarterback position. And so that's also an area where Elliott can help that team. So I think the Cowboys are doing basically what other teams are selling as they plan on doing when it comes to a back like Elliott or Ronald Jones or a Boston Scott, like I said. And then how you can also fill out your feature back spot, which they've done with the franchise tag and Tony Pollard. Yeah, and the thing with Elliott... When you look at the three options, it looks like Philadelphia, any carries, because Nick Sirianni, I mean, you know, really, I hate to say this, and maybe Brandon Lee Gowton can poke RJ Ochoa with what I'm about to say on the NFC East mixtape on Wednesdays on the Blog and the Boys podcast network, but the Eagles use... Jalen Hurts the way that Dak Prescott should have been used in his career with some designed runs and everything. So I feel like those would take away from Elliott's chances because the quarterback carrying is a key part of their run game. So I don't, so it's like you said, situational. If Elliott goes to the, to the Eagles, with the Bengals, you know, you got Joe Mixon. You maybe he could get some touches there. As you said, they're probably looking for solutions um, to 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 keep their franchise quarterback Joe Burrow from sustaining so many hits. Uh, but I think the best place for Elliott, honestly, would be the New York Jets for two reasons. One, you got drama because Aaron Rodgers is coming. And number two, you've got, um, you know, even if he doesn't arrive, they may need to just move the ball on the ground. And that just to be a complete back, let's say, I think 
New York presents the best opportunity. Um, to win now, it's going to be either Philadelphia or Cincinnati, but at a but with a diminished role, and you better not get hurt, whether a hamstring or anything during camp or something, so that you get injury waived when they do the 53-man cut down. So that's what I think of Elliott's option. And nobody needs me to remind you that the Eagles are, of course, on the Cowboys' schedule twice next year, but so too are the Jets. So you know, there's intrigue of if that's going to be another Mike McCarthy versus Aaron Rodgers matchup, and now it could even be a Mike McCarthy versus Aaron Rodgers versus Zico Elliott storyline. So we could have a lot of fun on Jets week. Um you know, across the bargain, the boys universe of that game has all the storylines that we think it might, but the Cowboys do not play the Bengals this upcoming year. They played them last year. Cooper Russ beat them to uh, initially kind of save the season. Of course, we remember that game. So that was a Cooper and, you know, great to have Cooper Russ back in the backup role again, four games, just like that. So the Bengals game from last year, no Bengals game this year, but Jets and Eagles could be landing spots where the Cowboys have to uh, play against their former running back Ezekiel Elliott. What if he went to the Eagles? Do you think it would be as big of a defection as when DeMarco Murray went to Philadelphia in the 2015 offseason? Oh, I think it's actually worse, Mark. I think it's way worse because, you know, crunch some numbers on this. And I think Cowboys fans are all, you know, able to look at DeMarco Murray going to Philly in, in a very, you know, comedic type of way, if you will. It was Chip Kelly's offense. We were all scratching our heads as to, you know, how he's going to fit that offense. And then we watched it. That first game in Atlanta for the Eagles on Monday night where they're, you know, running him sideways and across the line of scrimmage and in these spread offense back type roles and it just wasn't working. But also, you know, the bigger reason why we thought it just wasn't going to work there was just a wear and tear, which is actually pretty similar, though, if you crunch the numbers by season to what Ezekiel Elliott has left. You know, DeMarco Murray took 944 carries over his career with the Cowboys. That was over four seasons, so that averages to about... 236 per season. Elliott, 1,881 carries over seven seasons, so still 268 per season, close to Murray, but that seven-season you know, wear and tear makes it significant where I think we looked at DeMarco Murray, we all knew he was done. Elliott, you know, most people think he's done. Others think there's something left in the tank, and then there's a ton of you know gray area in the middle there for what he's actually going to be, and I think me and you are probably both somewhere in that middle, but Within that, yeah, I think he has enough left to, if he does go to a team like Philadelphia, where they're so good at, you know, understanding players' roles and just asking them to do what they're great at and, you know, using them to push Jalen Hurts on those QB sneaks. I'm sure he can do that. Or using them in goal line. You know, even if it's just a one-yard touchdown, the idea of seeing Elliott dancing in the end zone and that Eagles green is a pretty terrible one. So, yeah, I think it's worse. I think we all knew DeMarco Murray, you know, wasn't going to be a significant part of an Eagles team that really did anything. Whether or not Elliott can be or will be, yet to be determined. But even if he's just a goal line running back, it doesn't add much value. That means he's going to be in the end zone a couple of times in Eagles Green doing a little dance. And I just can't imagine that or don't want to see that happen by any stretch. Yeah, I feel like Murray's was more motivated out of spite, whereas Elliott's is motivated more so out of keeping his career alive. But. You never, I just never got the sense that 
Murray was going to have such a moment to stick it in the eye of the Cowboys when he signed with Philadelphia. You're right, but it kind of depends on the schedule because if it's the first, you know, to first blood in the series is a November game. I mean, is Elliott even going to be healthy by that point? If it's a week two and he's been doing well throughout camp, I'm best shape of my life. Everyone's in the best shape of their life <laughs> in uh, June and July for some reason. Uh, but if it's a situation like that, yeah, and it's at AT&T Stadium, and oh my gosh, he scores and jumps into the uh, red kettles, willing to pay the $35,000 fine. Yeah, I think it could set up for the most... Public enemy number one in Dallas right there if he yes, does. Yeah, that could be one of the worst, um, you know, revenge moments. Uh, but like I said... I, to me, at the beginning of this, I don't think Elliott is looking at the Eagles to spite the Cowboys. Murray, I, I, I believe, did that just to spite the Cowboys. Because look at, like you pointed out, look what it did for his career. It was so puzzling that he went there. He could have gone someplace else that would have run him up the middle, north and south, which is what he was good at. Instead, he goes to that. A uh, lateral behind the line of scrimmage running that he was terrible at, just so he could maybe stick it in the eye of the Cowboys. Instead, he got Chip <laughs> Kelly fired. One of many things that got Kelly fired. Do you remember the Sean Lee big play? I think it was a Thanksgiving game. He made a huge tackle against Michael Murray in a Philly uniform, and it was just like a euphoric moment for Cowboys fans. Like, yeah, Murray's not our guy anymore, but Sean Lee is, and you know, fan favorite linebacker, of course, and he made that huge play. I mean, I can just picture. Mika Parsons doing the same thing to Ezekiel Elliott and Eagles Green. And as weird as that would be to watch and see those worlds collide from former teammates. Well, actually, Sean, I think maybe you're conflating that with November the 8th, 2015 on Sunday Night Football with Sam Bradford as a starting quarterback for the Eagles because on Thanksgiving that year, he's only there one year, 2015, and they played. Oh, okay. That, that's why that game got erased to my memory because the Carolina game yeah. was horrible and Romo got hurt. But, but I also remembered Demarco Murray, like shove, like running into, uh, Dan Bailey on the sidelines in week two, up at Lincoln Financial Field. Oh yes, and Dan Bailey's just trying to hold himself up, and then because he did that, he incurs a fifteen-yard personal <laughs> foul on a kicker. <laughs> Kickers of people, too, Mo. Kickers of people, too. Anyway, yeah, I just don't think that... Um, <laughs> I would have never remembered that, but yeah, now I yeah, do. Yeah, it's... There are so many memories about that game, and uh, maybe we'll go into it uh, when we have an episode during the doldrums of the offseason where we compare the Cowboys to a microwavable kettle corn. All right, now, anyway, moving on. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys, did you know, Sean have the 11th lowest draft capital going into the 2023 NFL draft. If you went by the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart, which a lot of teams still do. I know, you know, the Hardy boys have their graph that is on Twitter or whatever, but a lot of NFL teams still use 
the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart. And but if you go by that point value, they have 1,228.4 points, which is the value for their seven picks. And like I said, that is yeah, that's enough to get you one of those like slap bracelet things of you know ticket with some arcade tickets on the Jersey Shore boardwalk, which some decent veins do. Yes, exactly. But that's the 11th lowest in the NFL. Does that give you any concern when you look at the Cowboys going into this draft, maybe thinking that they can put the finishing touches on their roster with such low draft capital? It actually doesn't for a few reasons. You know, you mentioned finishing touches, and I think they're realizing the teams that have actually been able to do that, you know, the Chiefs and seeing the Eagles jump them in in the division and get all the way to the Super Bowl. You can't always do that for the draft. You know, you want to be draft heavy. The Cowboys, uh, there was a stat that came out on Twitter the other day that I shared about them having, like, I think, the most starts by any, you know, drafted players over the last couple of years of any team, last 10 years, any team in the league. So, you know, if you do want to build for the draft and you feel like you have the personnel, you know, Will McClay mainly to go do that, that's great. It still is a great way to build the foundation of your team. And they've absolutely done that and, you know, kept themselves in contention for a long time because of that. But you mentioned finishing touches. You know, that's where you need to look outside the draft and leverage those those draft picks that you usually weren't using to hit on big-time players anyway to go get a Brandon Cook, Stephon Gilmore. You know, you pointed out a couple of weeks ago, you know, Stephen Jones was all tongue-in-cheek a couple of years ago when the Amari Co- uh, Cooper trade happened. He was like, well, I, I do have a first-round pick. But that, you know, that doesn't reflect as well because – was he truly worth, you know, every bit as much of a controllable five-year contract on a first-year pick? That's hard to say considering how you shipped him off for not as much value, you know, at a point where he could still contribute. So that w- wasn't a great example of such, but, you know, you look at the Cowboys now, they still have three top 100 picks. We know about the 26th overall pick. We know about 58, but then our third-round pick still falls at 90th overall. So three times in the top 100 as all Jess Haney at BTB wrote about, you know, the fifth-round picks they've given up, you're probably not going to miss them all that much. The last 15 years worth of fifth-round picks to run through it real quick. The only one that earned a second contract was your very first one in 2008, Orlando Skandrick. Then it was David Buell, Michael Hamlin, D'Angelo Smith, Josh Thomas, Danny Cole, Joseph Randall, Devin Street, Ryan Russell, Mike White. You know, stop me when you hear a player that really is going to help you win a Super Bowl. Joe Jackson, Michael Jackson, Bradley Anae, Simi Fajoko, John Ridgway, now, 2022, Damone Clark, 2022, also Deron Bland. So just at the very end there, you notice a little bit of a tick up on the defensive side of the ball, of course. And, you know, what can we attribute that to? I think none other than Dan Quinn, another topic I covered at BTB when it comes to Quinn, you know, squeezing the most out of both free agent acquisitions and draft picks. So I'm not concerned at all because you have the right mix of top 100 picks that we know this team is generally going to do well with. Plus, you still have enough picks in the later rounds to where if you do draft on defense, the chances are higher than ever over the last 15 years that you're going to get somebody that Quinn can actually make a player out of. So you put that together, you put what you have already in the barn together with Gilmore and Brandon Cooks, and it all adds up to you know this team doing what winning teams, what championship teams, if I dare say, do. And I think it's you know something that they can look forward to in this draft. All three of those top 100 picks, you can really attack best player available without a glaring roster need. It's going to be a really fun way to go into this draft, just adding the best possible talent all the way through. 
knowing that everything from your top picks to your later round picks could be developed by Dan Quinn or Mike McCarthy on the offensive side of the ball and really just put those prospects in the best uh, position to succeed. And kind of like with the 2022 draft where you saw those picks were answering contract questions that were going to come up down the road, you can do the same thing with this, you know, with these picks. Also, you know, there are teams that are always looking to trade up, build packages, go get their guy. So even though I just read uh, the Cowboys uh, draft total and, oh, my gosh, they have seven picks and it's only worth this much. It, oh, the, the thing with that is there's so much wheeling and dealing that goes on in the draft. Let's take their 169 overall in round five. You could have a team that really wants to get somebody, and then they build a package of six and a future fifth to go get their guy at 169. So a lot of this, the day three stuff, and uh, yes, the, thank you. The, they are, they've never beaten the Dayton Triangles. Thank you, dog. Yes, <laughs> I know. All right. Um, if So you have those picks there. Those could turn into multiple picks for you. And then next year, they're coming into the draft season. I mean, look what they did with Cooks and with uh, with Cooks and Gilmore. So this is actually nice. The day in Triangle was played at a park called Triangle Park. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just looked this up, and that is awesome. There was a Triangle Park that they played football in with a team named the Triangles. That just made my entire week. Yeah, and you know what stinks is they don't – they have – uh, you know, the Tennessee Titans are going to really <laughs> egg it on with uh, Houston sports fans by wearing the Oilers throwbacks this year. I, I don't understand why more teams don't try to th- wear the throwbacks of these defunct franchises just to teach a little bit about the history, the rich history of the game. You know, uh, they ought to, the Browns ought to wear some Canton Bulldogs throwbacks. I know the Eagles in 07 we're trying to wear a Frankfurt yellow jacket throwbacks. That's what those horrible throwbacks were. They had in 07. The yellow and blue. Yeah, they should do that for some of these defunct franchises. But that is with these five through seven round picks. That's the thing is these could turn into more. So what the Cowboys have in draft capital now may not be what they have once they get through the draft. Right. And, you know, I think it's a little bit too early to talk about, you know, what do you prefer based on this draft class, particularly around that first round pick? Is it a draft where you want to go up and go get a star because you don't have that star power that can fall to 26? Or is it the right draft to, you know, even package 26 to go out of the first round entirely, go back and get more of that value off the Jimmy Johnson chart, like you said? So a little bit too early to forecast that, I would say. But, you know, I think. Certainly a trade-up for the right star makes sense, just given the other moves the Cowboys have made to show us that they want to be all in and go contend, but also, you know, still needing the draft to sustain the bulk of your roster That's and using it to look at crystal ball future contracts that are going to be up that could be an issue, not this past offseason that's already ongoing, but next offseason where the offensive line is going to be even more of a problem. I think, you know, the offensive line opposite to 26 are enticing, but so too are the ones that you can go trade back to, get more picks, and then you don't leave the draft 
with just offensive line depth that isn't going to make too much of a difference this year, but you get your future linemen, you get some, you know, more tools for Quinn to work with, you get a receiver in there at some point, all of those options open up more in a potential tradeback scenario, so that's a great way for them to get more value um, once the draft comes around. Yeah, and it always turns out that way, too, where, uh, you know, teams just, like I said, they want a guy, and then they give you a bunch of picks to take your guy, and then you move back. So that horse trading's going to go on on day three, which is why, let's say you're covering the draft, and you think, oh, three more picks, and I, I get to go home. No, because your team you're covering <laughs> just traded one of them, and now you have seven more picks to cover before you can go home. And the taco stand you want to go eat at will close invariably before that. Man, what draft did you cover with a taco stand? Oh, uh, I, I could go for a taco right now. I did the one in Dallas, and you know they they, they gave us some good food, and, and I got to try just a little bit of the local foyer while I was there. But man, I didn't I didn't have no taco stands. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. It's uh. You know, not not always is there a taco stand available where you think there should be one, which is why it's frustrating when the team you're covering trades three of their pick. Now you got seven more to cover. Like, dang, they're going to be closed now. Um, but someone who was a little frustrated last season was Troy Aikman, allegedly, during the Monday night football season, as according to awful announcing uh the ESPN fired uh well they let go a uh, director Jimmy Platt and producer Phil Dean who were being swapped out for Derek Mobley and Steve Ackles according to awful announcing now allegedly Platt and Dean uh they weren't exactly working out with New play-by-play team, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. And so while the article doesn't exactly say that uh, Troy Aikman is a diva to work with or that Joe Buck's difficult to work with, there's kind of this underlying insinuation when you read the article, just when you take a look at it. And so I throw it to you, Sean, who has worked in the sports broadcasting industry. Um, What do you make of uh, this article from Awful announcing on Aikman? Well, I know we can't spend too much time on this, but I think that, you know, it points to a trend that isn't going anywhere in the broadcasting industry. And so we both, you know, went to college for it and studied this industry at a time when, you know, probably even it moves so fast that even from your freshman year to your senior year, there's big major changes, you know, as you're getting ready to look for a job in it that can shake things up. So if it changes that much over the course of, you know, the four years you're trying to study it, imagine, you know, now now how much it's changing year to year. But the trend that's not going anywhere is, you know, the preference that these networks are going to have for their on-air talent to be, you know, former players. The idea of that you can just study and textbook your way to, you know, having the credibility to talk football. It's still out there. We still have plenty of people, you know, on this very podcast network that never played a down of football, but are absolutely trusted and should be trusted and are putting in the work and, you know, me and you included. But it's a trend where, you know, the biggest, brightest lights of Monday Night Football doesn't get much bigger than that, of course. You don't want just, you know, some guy on Twitter to be calling the game. Of course, it's 
advantageous to ESPN to have, you know, a big Super Bowl winning Hall of Fame quarterback like Troy Aikman. But then what you're not having in that role is, you know, like you said, the expertise to just broadcasting or knowing how to deal with your staff and your crew and what goes into all the technical production. So that's where, you know, that bridge has to be gapped by the production staff, which is very good. You know, you don't just walk your way into a production role on ESPN's Monday Night Football. So the guys who just lost their job there and the guys who stepped in, I'm sure all, you know, very senior type producers who will either find new work or continue to work on Monday Night Football and ESPN. So you have to bridge that with, you know, and hedge your bet, if you will, to have a guy like Aikman who's going to bring you all the football expertise you need, but not all the broadcasting, you know, polished, finished product that way. You can make up for it with a very strong, very strong production staff, but then are they going to butt heads when it comes to that production staff really needing to drill down and, you know, tell Troy Aikman, oh, we need this done, or this is how it's going to be, or, you know, the telestrator's not working because this or that, whatever. So that's, you know, something that's just going to be an ongoing thing in the industry. There was another article on Awful announcing, similar to the one you're referencing, about Joe Buck giving Tom Brady advice going into his now broadcaster career, and Buck said, I expect him to do it well, but it's a weird thing to do. There's a bit of acting involved into presentation as much as just knowing football. I'm sure he'll be great, but I'm anxious to see it. So that presentation, that acting side to it is where former athletes can probably especially struggle. They just want to do what they're used to, and that's, you know, something is not right. They, they're they vocal, especially a quarterback like Aikman, and maybe Brady will be this way too. Something's not right. They're vocal. It's just what they're used to. It's, it's how they get things fixed. We all know the, you know, NFL Films quick clip of, Aikman complaining to the Cowboys coaches, thinking 97 about, you know, why he has to be the guy to go run down everybody's throat. So things like that. It's just what quarterbacks are used to and how they get stuff done and whether or not that works in a workplace like ESPN television and Monday Night Football is, you know, to be determined. And certainly it seems like it costs some good producers their job along the way here. But that trend isn't going anywhere. And former athletes are going to have a voice. Former Cowboys especially are going to be very particular about the way that they you know, present themselves because they know that they stay in the spotlight for their entire post-football career. And so I think Aikman will handle this fine and you know, continue to be a bright light on Monday Night Football. But ESPN just has to find the right staff to, um, to make sure that they're as good as they can be and get those producers you know, working in a harmonious way with uh, our former Super Bowl winning quarterback. I think some of it is just kind of the super team um, chemistry argument because you can always look at uh this great roster they had so many pro bowlers and all pros and how did they not win how did they get beat in the wild card round and usually it goes back to cohesion and i think that may be what they were dealing with because espn you know they thought that they had they trusted those guys the director and the producer they they, you know, those were their guys. And they thought they knew their quality of work. Everybody knows Buck and Aikman's quality of work. So maybe you think that meshing together will work out. And, you know, it it didn't. And that's just because I think it was just a conflict of systems of the cohesion not being there. Take, take a look at this. You've had um, big names jump to other networks, and we didn't hear anything about it like this. Uh, Taken 2006, Al Michaels goes to, Al Michaels and Madden go from 
ABC Monday Night Football to NBC Sunday Night Football, which they started up in 06. A lot of the same people behind the scenes, the producers, directors, went from ABC to NBC Sports. And so that's why it was kind of seamless and remained as the NFL game of the week. Even in 06, when you had this new thing of Monday Night Football, it was really more of taking the ESPN Sunday Night Football production and putting it on Monday nights. So you had Joe Theismann, who had been doing uh, ESPN Sunday Night Football for years, already familiar with the production crew and everything, and the Telstrator and all that, as that was one of the uh, complaints Aikman had. Uh, you know, it's just they're moving it to another night of the week. Mike Tirico, who had been doing NBA games, college games for ESPN um, since 97, familiar with the pro you know, with the production crew. So he is working with them during the off season with basketball and all that. So in the corn eyes are all he had to do was talk. Uh, so you had them ready to go. Even John Madden and Pat Summerall in 94, that was one of Madden's concerns going from CBS, which was known to Fox, which was unknown is what kind of production quality would it have and why it worked, why John signed on, was because they got everybody from CBS to come to Fox, and that's why it worked. And I think that's the case with ESPN, is you just had kind of a lack of cohesion. I don't think Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are divas. Yeah, if you ever teach a broadcasting course, I want to come in and sit in the back row and just watch. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, one of my tweets actually was used... Uh, in one of my alumnus, fellow alumnus's uh, courses that he taught on um, sports journalism or something at East Texas uh, Baptist University. So, you know, I, I'm getting quoted everywhere. I, I'm being used as an example, a positive one, not a cautionary tale. I like it. We just got to get some warm weather up your way there in uh, northeast Ohio and It'll be good to go. A little bit of summer fever setting in here in Austin, which is always nice, of course. So uh, going to be a good one. Yeah. Oh, well, we're going to get in trouble this week going overtime here. But uh, we got to do it. We got to get to the Cowboys' birthdays before we get out of here. Let me run through them real quickly. We have on Monday, we've got Doug Cosby, tight end, turned 66, was with Dallas from 79 to 88. Jason Witten broke a lot of his records. On Tuesday, Jason Garrett, he was, of course, backup quarterback from 92 to 99. He turns 56, also coach from 2010 to 2019. Still got to figure out if he calls it pork roll or Taylor Ham. On Thursday, Billy Cundiff turns 43. He kicked an NFL record seven field goals. In, it was game tying at the time, week two of 1993 is with the team from 02 to 05. And then on Saturday, Jim Jeffcoat, a two-time Super Bowl winning champion, played for Dallas from 1983 to 1994, turned 62 years old on Saturday, and he's from Long Branch, New Jersey. Sean? Probably most notably only for Long Branch being the train station along the New Jersey transit line where the switch happens from like electric to mechanical or whatever it's called on the line, so pretty much every 
train trip you're going to take through Jersey to get into New York or wherever you may be going, you're going to end up stopping at Long Branch. I spent many a days at the uh, time at the Long Branch train station making transfers and talking to people there and saw a guy one morning in a uh, Marcus Allen Raiders jersey and things like that. So, yeah, shout out to the Long Branch train station for uh, helping me get to work and such. But other than that, not really sure what they're known for. I know they got a lot of good, like, you know, little small homegrown mom and pop type restaurants. So I bet you could find a great pork leg and cheese sandwich in Long Branch. So we'll, we'll nail that one down for you. But Coach Garrett, it better be called pork roll. Come on, you're a Princeton man. Princeton, smart education, do the right thing. And shout out to the Princeton Tigers, of course, for a great run in the NCAA March Madness Tournament. It was cool to see not only what they did, but FDU. But now as we get towards the Final Four, all eyes going to be on, uh, you know, Texas around here, of course, about to play here on Sunday afternoon. So we'll know what they did by Monday. But Texas basketball and then some other programs that have never won it before. So we'll see some first-timers in the National Championship game, which is always really exciting. Where can they follow you on Twitter, Sean? Hey, I'm at Sean Martin NFL. So uh, go ahead and press that follow for some draft content, for some poor call content, whatever it may be. You know, my profile pic these days is uh, me down there at Houston Rodeo in a cowboy hat and boots standing be- in front of a giant cowboy boot. So, uh, you know, very Texas profile picture these days. So go ahead and give me a follow. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at The Real Mark Lane. So there it is. Yeah.